Welcome to The Debris. This is where we talk about what was left behind by Hurricane Katrina and the floods that followed. I'm your host, Eve Tro. And I'm Mallory Falk, education reporter for WWNO New Orleans Public Radio. There's something particularly sad, haunting even, about an abandoned school. After Katrina, you might see flooded schools with homework assignments still written on the chalkboard, with a floodwater line below, and a jumble of overturned desks, rotting papers, molding textbooks. What happened next in such a scene? School real estate has been part of the education puzzle in New Orleans the past decade. The city's had to figure out how many schools it needs and where to put them as the local populations shifted. FEMA pledged $1.8 billion to refurbish or build new schools. The original master plan cut about a third of the city's schools, but there are calls to revisit that plan now that the population's growing. In the meantime, the Orleans Parish School Board is selling off about a dozen vacant properties. Charter schools get dibs on empty school buildings before they go to public auction, like Andrew J. Bell Jr. High School building in the Treme. Tessa Jackson took a look to see if it would make a new home for her school, Milestone Academy. Right now we're type 2 charter, so we don't have a school district that will provide us a building, so it's up to us as a a charter school board to actually find our own facility. We're going into these buildings and looking at cost of rehab compared to building new, because a lot of these buildings were built over 100 years ago, so What was looked for in terms of classroom size, classroom needs, is going to be a lot different. I'm excited about the opportunity, and I think we've seen some interesting sites and things that have potential. But once charter schools have all passed on a property, it can be sold to a private developer, turned into something else. Adaptive reuse, that's called. And New Orleans is a city becoming known for it. Michael Grody is Director of Building Programs for Alembic Community Development. He showed me around the Myrtle Banks building. The former school in New Orleans' central city closed long before Katrina, but it's found a new life since. After a painstaking renovation, it's been turned into a sort of modern food hall and market with office spaces above. It's a striking, dark brick building with beautiful details. I met him at the stairs leading up to what used to be classrooms. I mean, you look at this and you just can imagine kids. What, what is it about these stairs that makes it look like a school? I think it's the, the, the stairs that lead up to the hallway. You know, I, I, um, I think it's something also just in our collective memory that this, this is a school you could probably take anyone off the street who'd never seen this building and blindfold them, walk them in and show them this stairwell. And most of them would guess, is this a school? Even though I never even went to a school that looked like this. So tell me a little bit about what you learned about this building. So uh, this building was built in 1910. It was an elementary school or middle school until 2000. And in the 80s, it was renamed uh, Myrtle Banks Elementary for Myrtle Banks, who had, she was here for 50 years as a teacher and then as principal. What was your impression the first time you saw this building on the inside? Wow. It looked like a bomb had gone off. Um, you know, there was a fire... The roof and the third floor pretty much had collapsed onto the second floor. They had built in the demolition and disposal price into the appraisal. No one, no one felt like this building was worth anything or was worth saving or was salvageable. Uh, So why take on this project? Um, That's a great question. I think that to me, 
This building was an important piece to this street coming back. We believe that this kind of building you can't get back if you lose it. We don't build buildings like this anymore. Technically, it is a uh, arts and crafts Italian revival facade with a beautiful, beautiful manganese brick, which is this sort of Merlot kind of uh, iridescent brick. And then I think the thing that makes this building are the windows, these beautiful 12 over 2 wood windows. As we're up in the third floor, we don't turn the lights on at all. I left the office at, at, at dusk yesterday and still had not turned the lights on because in 1910, lights and electricity were at a premium, I'm sure. So this building had to function on natural light. It is a function that is useful 100 years later for people working in offices or people working at desks, just like students did. Has anybody who went to school here been by to take a look and that kind of thing? Yes. Um, There's been a handful of folks who have come by. And I think this building, from the time that it was built in 1910 to, to today, and hopefully now for the next 100 years, was a real source of pride for the neighborhood. When it was built, it replaced two smaller schools, and it was a massive building, and it was a massive undertaking, and it was a massive investment from the city. And even in some of the lowest times this neighborhood has seen, this building was still a source of pride. The, The neighborhood really loves this building. A few people have come in and have told me and pointed out where they had class, where they had third grade class, where Myrtle Banks would at morning um, assembly down here in the in the walkout basement she would play the piano um, how big her hands were and how she would bang on the keys in the morning and uh, every morning everyone would sing at the assembly. Is it sad to people that it that it didn't reopen as a school? I have not run into that sentiment. Um, I have had a lot of drive-by walk-by feedback. Everyone is glad that it's coming back. And what is it, what's it going to be was the secondary question. Um, this, the first response was, I'm so glad that they're saving that building. That's Michael Grody of Alembic Community Development talking about renovations to the Myrtle Banks building, a former school. Not all school buildings were destroyed during Katrina. As families returned to the city, schools started to reopen. But there were many new faces inside those schools. After the storm, all employees of the New Orleans school system, about 7,500 teachers and other staff, were fired. That led to an unprecedented diaspora of school teachers. New research suggests only a small fraction of them came back to teach in the city's schools today. Reporter Sarah Carr talked to two veteran educators, one who now teaches in the new school system, the other decided to leave. When Katrina hit, Nolan Grady had taught math for more than 30 years. And then what I would do, I would align my roles up with the lifetime. Grady's been doing this since 1973, when fresh out of college, the central office sent him to O'Perry Walker High School. There he encountered a sea of white faces— Schools back then were required to desegregate both students and staff, white and black teachers for white and black students. But Walker's principal already had a black teacher, and one was all that he wanted. He said, well, I'm going to call central office and tell them that I don't need you. Um, It was just the way he said it. But when the lone black teacher left, Grady was summoned back. He needed a black teacher. 
And so I came back over here. I've been at Walker ever since 1973. Over the years, white students and teachers fled the public schools, and Walker became a very different place. Public schools became a major employer of the city's growing black middle class. They came to enroll almost entirely black students. But Katrina changed things. Grady evacuated with his mother to Dallas. Just a couple months after the storm, he heard a few schools would soon reopen. There might be a job. So he and his mom packed up the car and headed back home. Housing was real tight. I mean... You could hardly find an apartment or anything or a house to rent. Or it turned out a job. Shortly after Grady returned that fall, Walker was turned into a charter school. If he hoped to resume teaching, Grady would have to reapply. So it was just like, this is Nolan Grady. Boom. Nobody knows anything about him at all. He hasn't been teaching at all. And he has no job. And we want to know why he wants to work for us. But Grady got along well with Walker's new principal. She told them the city's long, struggling schools needed to do better. She said, Grady, I'm asking you, would you come along on this journey with me? and help me do what we should have done for our kids prior to Katrina. Grady, now in his 60s, said yes. And I like the idea that we have our own autonomy as an individual school. That was one of the reasons why I said, you know, I come along on this journey. At Walker, which after a merger is now Landry Walker, most of the students are still non-white and low-income. They describe Grady as tough, dedicated, and very funny. Man, Mr. Good, that's my favorite teacher right there. That man is smart. He know what he's doing. He know how to teach. He do it right. That's Damian Pickett. Grady's decades of experience and deep knowledge of New Orleans help him connect with students. Well, I'm a product of the public schools. I think that's important. I understand the neighborhoods where they come from. Grady likes the autonomy of charter schools, but he worries not enough of their new teachers share common roots with the kids. It's that connection that keeps him coming to work every day. I look like I'm going to be on this journey for a little while until I decide to hang up this. It's no longer a chalkboard, this dry eraser marker. When I feel like I've done enough, then I'll hang it up. But I feel I still have a few more good years left in me, and the journey is not complete. I believe we're halfway But it's still a long ways to go. Grady teaches at a school with dozens of veteran black educators. At many New Orleans schools, they are a much smaller group. Tulane University's Education Research Alliance has been studying teacher demographics. They found that of the 4,600 teachers who taught in the public schools before Katrina, 20% or just over 900 remain. Grady, in other words, is one of few gray-haired teachers in the city's schools. Some have died, others never returned to New Orleans, and some struggle to get rehired in the city's new education landscape. We've seen fresh blood in the classroom with new faces. Luis Miron directs the Institute for Quality and Equity in Education at Loyola University. He gives the changes mixed reviews. There have been significant unintended negative consequences on black educators, especially veteran teachers. Basically, it's harder for them to get a job. As for the impact on students, it's difficult to quantify. Students may benefit from the new energy and ideas, but they've lost teachers who look like them and come from a similar background. Many of those who opened new charter schools after Katrina were white and young and not from New Orleans. 
the percentage of black teachers dropped from about 71 percent in 2005 to just under 50 percent last year. That's according to Tulane's new data. Some of these shifts appear to be leveling off. Teach for America, for instance, is trying to recruit more non-white teachers. When it comes to experience, over the same time period, the percentage of teachers with more than 20 years in the classroom fell from 37% to 15%. I started teaching when I was 21 years old. I never really had any other a job in any other area. It was the only thing I felt I knew how to do. When Katrina struck, Sharice Harrison Nelson had been teaching for close to 25 years. Exiled in Houston and then a New Orleans suburb, she didn't think too much about the mass firing. I guess I thought it was a temporary situation. I didn't think it was really the end. And I was so busy trying to survive that I was trying to survive. Harrison Nelson is not just an educator. She's a cultural leader. She is a Mardi Gras Indian big queen and the daughter of now-deceased Donald Harrison, a legendary big chief. The Mardi Gras Indians spend months sewing elaborate beaded suits, an homage to Native Americans who assisted blacks during slavery. For many, they represent the heart and soul of the city's black culture. Before Katrina, Harrison Nelson used the Indians in lessons for gifted students at Aretha Castle Elementary, among other roles. They learned the music. They created their own songs, chants. Uh, They learned all about sewing, what had to happen in a suit. After Katrina, Harrison Nelson tried to teach in New Orleans. She lasted briefly at what she calls a poorly run middle school. But she tore a rotator cuff when a child pulled a chair out from under her. She never went back. First there was Katrina, then the mass firing, the chaos of reopening schools, the injury. Then four years ago, she found out she had cancer. It was simply too much. It's not for me. I'm a cancer survivor, and I have to have a life. I have to have a life. Over the years, charter schools have flourished, including some where most teachers are under the age of 35. Harrison Nelson grew concerned teachers weren't given enough creative freedom. And she also felt that teachers over a certain age simply weren't welcome. Over 50. Probably over 40. So Harrison Nelson retired just before the age of 50. She now lives on $1,400 a month. And I don't get a lot of money. I really don't. And if I went back to work, I would get twice as much money, probably three times as much money. But quality of life is worth something, more than money. Harrison Nelson still works with children, but mostly as a volunteer. In January, she helped organize a children's MLK Day event at the city's McKenna Museum of African American Art. After singing a staid rendition of Happy Birthday to the Civil Rights Leader, she and her son encouraged the kids to try it the Mardi Gras Indian way. The children received crowns, books, and goodie bags, and they learned songs from the civil rights movement. 
Harrison Nelson expected to teach much longer, but she has no regrets about her new path, and she's glad she's not part of the new classroom system. I think that it's a change of guard, and they think they have a better way of doing it. For veteran teachers, the new charter schools have been a mixed bag. Some have found hope, others only frustration. Meanwhile, every year, New Orleans schools gain a fresh crop of energetic young teachers, and they lose a little more of the wisdom that comes from experience. That's Sarah Carr of the Teacher Project at Columbia University, following two veteran New Orleans educators after the storm. It's not just the teaching force that's changed since Katrina. The city's public school system is made up almost entirely of charter schools. If those schools don't measure up, they can get shut down or taken over. The ability to close underperforming schools or those that violate regulations is a hallmark of school reform in New Orleans. Of the many charters that have opened since the flood, about 20 have closed or changed operators. Mallory followed a couple of those schools this spring. Andrew H. Wilson is a K-8 charter school in the Broadmoor neighborhood. Its contract was up for review this year. To get renewed, the school had to earn a D. It missed the grade by less than one point. Here's Principal Logan Crow. It was kind of like being hit with a a Mack truck in the front and being beaten up by Mike Tyson from the back. The state could have shut down Wilson entirely, but the school has a large student body and strong community ties, so the state voted to keep it open under new management. That led to a major question. Who would run the school? Some parents thought they should have a say, like Lamont Douglas. His daughter Taylor is in first grade. In our minds, we were like... Why would someone else who don't really know our children be in charge of picking someone who's going to take over the school? He and other parents pushed to be involved. Their priority, an operator who wouldn't treat the school and the students like failures. Our kids aren't failing kids. You know, that word takeover means that you're just coming in and just demolishing everything that we've built and you're going to bring in your own things. That's Douglas's wife, Maisha Jackson. She teaches math at Wilson. She was drawn to Inspire NOLA, a charter management organization with two successful schools. Whereas Inspire said, hey, we're going to consult you all to see what is it that you guys did, what worked well, what didn't work, and we're going to, you know, work together. The parents and the state picked Inspire NOLA, but students weren't shielded from the tumult. For some students, the announcements and changes raised a question. Were they responsible? I thought that it was all my fault, like mostly my fault, because like I wasn't taking like the school serious. I wasn't like focusing and doing my best and, and like my full potential. Janara is a seventh grader at Wilson. Her friend Kiari, a sixth grader, has a different concern. The students that's coming in gonna be probably be like. Well, this is my school now because y'all F school and bragging about how they probably not an F school. And I think some um, students probably be like, well, we're an F school and all that, and they're better than us. Still, Wilson will stay open next year. Another school met a different fate. Lanyap Academies is a small K-4 school, a cluster of mobile classrooms on a parking lot in the Treme. 
Investigators claimed Lanyap wasn't serving students with disabilities. The state voted to close the school rather than find a new operator. That decision was devastating, says parent Anthony Parker. It's like having your first love leave you. You head over hills in love with this girl or this guy, and this is the one. This is the one you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And then out of nowhere, it takes a left turn, and that person's gone. Like many at the school, Parker thought there should have been a leadership change, not a closure. It was the administrators who messed up, not the students, not the teachers. On the last day at Lanyap, students chant, cheer, and share their feelings. I don't miss my favorite friend, Desmond, and Lewis, and Royal. First grade teacher Jennifer Pike Vassell says many students don't fully understand why their school is closing. It's maybe a good life lesson of there aren't always answers for things in life. So this is one of those things, unfortunately, at six or seven years old that I have to tell you, hey, in life there aren't always answers. Some students don't seem to understand it's the last day. One asks if there's any homework that night. Others ask for summer work packets. Maybe they're not, it's not really clicking that, you know, this is, this is their last day and the next time they see the school it might just be a bulldozed over parking lot. Parent Anthony Parker says he's learned nothing's guaranteed. The fear of going through another school closure is a real fear. When you're choosing a school... You got to know if, you're, if the school that you're sending your child to is going to be up for renewal. If it is, Parker says, be prepared for the possibility it might close. Mallory Falk, education reporter for WWNO. And that's where we'll put down this piece of Katrina Debris. You can find our podcast every week through the end of August on iTunes or use the podcast app on your smartphone. Just search for WWNO and Katrina the Debris. Our producer is Kate Richardson. Digital director is Jason Saul. Paul Mawson is general manager of WWNO. Katrina the Debris is produced here in New Orleans. If you like it, want to hear more, consider supporting New Orleans Public Radio. You can do that at WWNO.org. Support also comes from Dirty Coast Press. Learn more about their locally designed and produced products at DirtyCoast.com. I'm your host, Eve Tro. Until next time, be well, be good, be safe, and thanks. Thanks.